I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Transatlantic Tech Talks, a mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Undercurrents podcast. And it's great to be sharing with you this week three episodes on transatlantic cooperation in cyber governance and tech regulation. This is our last mini-series for 2021. As you'll know, sometimes we partner with the research programmes at Chatham House to deliver more in-depth three-part stories around a particular policy theme that we think demands attention. You can go back through our feed and you can see mini-series that we've done on South Korea, we've done on peace building. Further back, we've looked at issues such as the future of design thinking, which was really, really fascinating. But this today is a collaboration between the Digital Society Initiative at Chatham House, the International Security Programme, the International Law Programme, and the US and America's program. It's part of a collaborative project which has been supported by Microsoft. So what are we talking about? Transatlantic Tech Talks is a three-part mini-series which explores the state of international cooperation on digital governance between the United States, the UK and Europe. As technical innovation accelerates and new digital tools and business models arise, governments are working to develop a framework of regulations to safeguard the rights and interests of their citizens. Not all stakeholders agree, however, on the best way to achieve this. While some advocate a digital cooperation approach based on transparency and data sharing, others are more concerned with maintaining different interpretations of digital sovereignty. In this, the first episode, I'm joined by three experts who will set out the broad context for the discussions that we're going to have in this series. Then the following two episodes will deep dive into particular case studies. So today, I'm really delighted to be joined by Kasper Klinger, the Vice President of Government Affairs at Microsoft and a long-standing expert on cyber governance and cybersecurity, having been uh, previously Denmark's first tech ambassador to Silicon Valley. With him, we have two of my colleagues from Chatham House. First off, Harriet Moynihan, who is Acting Director of the International Law Programme, and Marianne Schneider-Petzinger, who is a Senior Research Fellow in the US and Americas Programme. And what you're about to hear is just a roundtable conversation between all three of them, where we assess where the major government, private sector and civil society actors stand on the question of digital governance and how they're approaching international negotiations around this. In particular, we're thinking about why international cooperation in this space is so important, not just for the economy, but also for issues such as human rights. The nature of the different approaches, these kind of models, cooperation, sovereignty, a more ambivalent kind of mix of the two, and the priorities and outlooks of the major governments and private sector players which are involved in this process. I hope you enjoy listening.
It's great to be joined today by three experts in this field. It's it's wonderful to have such a great group of guests with me for this conversation. I'm joined by Casper Klinger, Harriet Moynihan and Marianne Schneider-Petzinger. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. We're here really to set the scene in this conversation for the rest of the series and we'll be going in depth into some of the particular case studies that you've been working on in later episodes. But just before we get into why digital cooperation is so important and how we can coordinate better between different nations on the international stage here, Marianne, I wonder if you could just give us a sense of why this conversation is so important from a kind of economic standpoint the size of the digital economy today obviously you'd look 20 years ago at who the big companies are and the and the major economic sectors and you'd think probably fossil fuels and and mining and construction and things and now it's very much uh, tech companies so can you give us a bit more context on that absolutely i think transatlantic cooperation really is vital because of the us and eu's role and the UK for that matter, in the digital economy. And if you're just looking at some figures back in 2019, US experts of information and communications technology, so ICT services, to the EU stood at 31 billion US dollars and potentially ICT-enabled services added another 196 billion US dollars. So those figures are really enormous and the trend is growing. 60% of global GDP is already digitized and the COVID-19 pandemic has only accelerated this transition to the digital economy by probably at least two years. And again, as both sides of the economy are looking to stimulate their economies and to support the economic recovery from COVID, digital technologies will be very key to that. So I think the economic component is quite critical. At the same time, there's also, I would say, a geopolitical dimension to all of that where China's growth as a global tech power and its competing vision for the internet and its authoritarian approach to data governance provide challenges to the US, the EU, and the UK and a added stimulus for cooperation on digital tech governance. Yeah, thanks for that overview. And we're going to talk about the areas where perhaps more cooperation could be found later in the episode. But before we get onto that, Casper, I wonder if I could just come to you and ask... What regulation have we seen at a kind of international level so far in terms of governing this space? How much has this been a question up till now of of states making their own laws and working with the digital economy domestically versus sort of how much cooperation there's been at an international level on this issue? Yeah, no, thanks a lot, Ben. And I think that's a, both a great question and also the question that we're facing uh, these days. And just building on what Mayana said before, you know, I, th- I think we're probably standing in front of some 24, 36 pretty important months in terms of tech regulations or governance around technology digitalization. And of course, we were speaking uh, here in, in Europe uh, with the beginning of, of December 2021. And in many ways, you could argue that Europe is sort of the epicenter where a lot of this regulation is being moved forward. But I think you're pointing to an important part of this, which is if we look at the European Union and, you know, apologies to my UK audience for bringing in the EU in this conversation. But I think in many ways, what has happened also because of Brexit is, of course, that, you know, capitals matters has always mattered, but it matters a whole lot these days. But the the trend or, or, or the challenges we have is, of course, a lot of the technologies, including the technologies that the company I work for is developing and rolling out, knows no boundaries, no, knows no borders. And therefore, you, you can only, to some extent, regulate or govern technology at the national level. You really need international collaboration. And, and I would argue 
not only because my company wants me to do so, but also because I mean that, that even for some of the big technologies or some of the big approaches to governance, even inside the European Union, perhaps that's not enough in terms of international collaboration. Because I think if we if we throw in a couple of technologies, I would say, you know, machine learning or artificial intelligence, how do we avoid that we have biases in AI systems? Well, we can certainly regulate that in, in, in Europe, but to some extent, I think this is a very, very much a value-driven or human rights-driven discussion that requires you know, multilateralism or international collaboration. And it's one of the reasons why we think transatlantic collaboration, including with the UK, is going to be absolutely essential in keeping us together at a moment where there is fragmentation also at the global level in terms of how we govern new technology. Yeah, thanks very much. Just as a follow-up, do you think that what we've seen from the European Union recently, is is that a relatively recent trend? Do you think that they're sort of coming round to the view that coordinating on this is particularly important? I was just thinking, obviously, your experience as Denmark's first tech ambassador, was that something that, you know, was very much on the agenda while you were there in, in diplomatic terms? Or is this something that's quite new? Well, well I, I think there has always been a gap between where technology is and you know, where public policies or where regulatory spaces, I, I think that's not something new, which is particular for, for the digital economy or for the digital age. But I do think, and I, I would love to hear from Mayan and, and Harriet whether they agree on that, that there is an increased sense of urgency among many political leaders and many governments that it's sort of now or never if they want to remain in control and basically you know, determine the own destiny of how technology is going to be applied and whether this will benefit humanity just to take it up to, to the helicopter view writ large. And, and I think that sense of urgency is why we are seeing governments across the world. It's not only a European phenomenon. I think we're seeing very much in the US, we're seeing it in India, Southeast Asia, Australia, Latin America. There are many, many places where there is increased focus on how do we make sure that we set the rules and the boundaries around how technology is is uh, is rolled out and, and used. And I think what is particular about the European Union, and I'm really not objective here because I sit in Brussels and, uh, you know, having worked with the EU for many, many years, I think the ability of the EU to take a horizontal approach to tech regulation is perhaps where the EU is a little bit ahead of the curve. Now, Ben, if you ask me, do I think this is going to remain a unique uh, European Union phenomena? I would say absolutely not. I think you see whether it's on privacy or national security issues, whether we see on, on AI or cloud adaptation, many countries will or are already putting together new pieces of regulations, new pieces of policies. And some of these policies fit very well together. In other areas, there are different approaches to how to regulate or, or govern technology. And I think that's where the geopolitical aspect of the digital economy uh, becomes uh, quite interesting, including for the private sector, including for a company like Microsoft. Thank you. Harriet, would you like to come in? Have you got anything to add on the regulation side of things? So much. Yes, thank you. I mean, I very much agree with Marianne and Casper and Casper's point about the urgency of tending to international regulation at the moment, that this is the moment. And I think we've seen that reflected to some extent this year in quite an ambitious agenda at the G7, which you know did produce some quite interesting and useful agreements, I think, around digital technical standards and, and data free flow with trust, as, as well as around trade. And we have seen also some quite innovative things coming out of the EU, the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, a draft AI regulation, but when we think about international regulation, that's not just the EU, you know, which we really want something that is a global 
coherent standard. And that's that makes life much easier for businesses and for consumers. And I think we are lacking that at the moment. And there are several reasons for that. One is, of course, differing perspectives on regulation. The US tends to take a much more laissez-faire attitude to these things, hasn't really regulated social media yet anyway. And um, the EU is very active in a regulatory sense and, and the UK t- to some extent as well. But of course, as Marianne mentioned, another challenge for international regulation is the geopolitical climate. And the current climate is not terribly ripe for the, for agreeing big international treaties. And we've seen that in the context, for example, of cyberspace, where what we've ended up with is some cyber norms. So the use of soft law to try and get some agreement around uh, the sort of parameters of responsible behavior in cyberspace, because the prospect of a treaty is certainly um, some way off. So where we are, I think, is a recognition of the urgent need for more dialogue, for the use of soft norms and and flexible, nimble ways to approach regulation in an area that's obviously rapidly evolving. And I suppose the use of various forums, and we're starting to see those spring up, which enable not just states to talk together in a multilateral sense, but also the multi-stakeholder dialogue as well. Um, And it's good to see that a number of tech forums are springing up that are bringing all these actors around the table, not just governments. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to get into the multi-stakeholder aspects of this as we go on in this conversation. Could I just ask, Harriet, one word that seemed to pop up a lot in the in the reading I was doing for this episode and that seems to have some complexity to its meaning in this context is sovereignty. So could you just tell us a little bit about why that's such a important concept to be dealing with and how maybe sovereignty works in the digital space and how different sides view it? As an international lawyer, I get very excited when anyone talks about sovereignty. <laughs> but I think one of the difficulties actually around this word, which we've heard so much, including in the Brexit debate, is that sovereignty can mean different things in different contexts. So it is quite important to unpick it. And then I think at the simplest, it means, I suppose, a government's ability to set its own laws and, and values. Um, and to some extent, when we think about digital sovereignty, States do have the right to have control over their own critical infrastructure and to ensure that they invest so that they're technologically competitive, that there is a room, I think, for some digital sovereignty. But it's important that while there may be some areas where states want to sort of have control of their own affairs, there's huge value in international cooperation in this space. And as we've heard from just the statistics that Marianne gave us on on the potential for digital trade. So when we think about sovereignty in the context of China and Russia, uh, we tend to think more around government control of the internet, government yeah. control of social media and personal data. And that model is a sort of ideological approach where it's really a government-driven regulatory landscape. And that's a very different approach to the EU, the US and the UK, which are kind of championing an open global internet that is founded on international human rights law. And that vision is kind of important because it really does promote um, innovation, investment, trade, but it also ensures that people's rights are protected, that there are some safeguards there. With the sovereignty and control model that we're seeing coming out of more authoritarian regimes, we end up with a much more fragmented landscape where the internet is essentially controlled within a state's own territorial borders. And not only does that have big implications for rights like freedom of expression, but also it has implications for the ability for countries to do business with each other. Yeah, I don't know whether this is appropriate to say, but even as a political scientist, I'm quite excited about the sovereignty discussion. So you don't have to be a lawyer, I think, although I'm sure you understand it at a deeper level than, than I will ever be able to. 
No, but, but I, th I think, you know, the points that Harriet is, is making uh, is quite important because I think when we're looking at what is happening again in Europe, but across the world, I think the, the discussion around digital sovereignty or open strategic autonomy, whatever you want to call it, is, as you said, Harriet, you know, very fragmented. It means different things. And, you know, I don't want to talk too much about uh, Brexit, the European Union, what we're seeing. But of course, there were different interpretations of what sovereignty is in the 21st century. Um, and I would argue that I think in many ways, the European Union probably is better suited than most regional organizations in finding sort of a timely, modern approach to what sovereignty means in a digital age, where a lot of the technologies that we're utilizing, it doesn't respect traditional borders. And therefore, you know, the traditional legal systems that we've set up doesn't always cater for the kind of world we're looking into with, with different technologies. I think the other phenomena, which is very... Uh, obvious, especially for a company like Microsoft that are working with you know thousands of companies across Europe, is very few companies today are operating solely at the national level. Most companies today, including small and medium-sized enterprises, are in fact definitely regional, and a lot of them are in fact international. Uh, so therefore, I also think that from a sovereignty point of view, there is no doubt, as Harriet said, that this is very much about control, and you know better than anybody that autonomy comes from Greek and it basically means self-rule um, and I think that goes a long way in describing what the concerns are uh, including here in Europe and, and I think for a big technology company like Microsoft it could be easy to just sort of dismiss and say we need to live in a very globalized world where we have very few limits in, in terms of how technology can be, be rolled out and utilized but I think one of the learnings including for us is there are legitimate and good reasons why Let's focus on Europe, why European decision makers are concerned about control, are concerned about whether they can define, you know, the society that we're looking into. And it goes without saying that when we look back at the last one and a half years during very difficult moments in handling COVID-19, it has also shown that the digital divide is not only a global phenomena, it's also very much a regional or in our case, a European phenomenon where there are huge differences between digitalized Public sectors or digitalized private companies, those that are ahead have generally done much better during COVID-19 than those who did not. But I think we also have to recognize that the presence of big technology companies, including Microsoft, is something that is leading political decision makers to say, how do we make sure that we also build up ecosystems, that we scale companies in, in Europe? I think for us, you know, taking that into account, there are two things we need to, to become better at. One is helping build those ecosystems, working with partners, making sure that our technology is an enabler more than anything else. And the last bit is how can we make sure that we help deliver the kind of sovereignty in whatever form that European decision makers are, are looking into. And I think that's about transparency. It's about control. It's about defining, you know, the right rules and the right values around technology. We cannot also treat the EU or the US for that matter as a homogenous actor. And I think to some extent, you know, what Casper was just saying there is really important because there's huge structural but also philosophical differences in the EU and among key member states. And in the US, we see something quite similar where authorities over digital and tech issues are allocated across different departments and different independent agencies. And also on some matters, you know, the role of the state is quite important. So I think just keeping that in mind is important because it adds another layer of complexity for trying to increase transatlantic cooperation and there's so many different elements and actors at stake. Perhaps also, you know, important to kind of look at the changes that are happening 
in the United States because the U.S. government, you know, under the Trump administration, for the most part, I would say, ignored the tech sector while the EU moved ahead with its own agenda on a whole series of digital issues. Now, the Biden administration is trying to catch up, but still very much struggling to get officials into place and, you know, trying to, to set out its comprehensive approach. But I think there's three issues really that are worth spending a couple of minutes on because they're you know, quite critical both for the U.S. but also in the transatlantic context. Um, the first is competition and antitrust. And I think here for a long time, U.S. policymakers mostly thought that the existing antitrust laws and the authorities would work for the digital world as well. But now I think that both Democratic and Republican lawmakers are actually rethinking their approach and they're coming to understand that the current environment and big tech raises quite unique competition issues. And so the status quo really is no longer sustainable. So even though there is this shared assessment, it's still important that both parties come to this with very different perspectives and they disagree on the proper policy response. So even though there has been some movement in Congress, I think it's quite unlikely that we'll see any new digital rules coming there. I think really the federal regulators are going to be the key players driving forward the agenda in that space. The second big issue is content moderation, and that's probably been the issue where there's been the most kind of high-profile focus on this issue over the last four years, to some extent, again, a bit of shared assessment between Trump and Biden, both um, in 2020, expressed support for repealing what's called Section 230, so the kind of act that gives internet companies immunity from lawsuits for the content that's being posted by third parties. But again, policymakers are coming to this with very, very different concerns and unlikely, again, that we're going to see much movement on that front. And the third big issue is privacy. Here, I would say that the Biden administration and Democratic Congress are really much, much more active compared to their predecessor. Important to keep in mind that the U.S. does not have a national privacy law. And so this really is where the role of the state becomes important and individual U.S. states have copied, whether it's in part or in whole, the EU rules. So if you're looking at California, for example, the privacy legislation there is based in part on the EU's GDPR. Virginia has also just enacted similar, though perhaps less comprehensive, privacy legislation. So all of that, again, is saying that there's moving parts. And that is also very much driven by changes happening in public attitudes in the United States. So it's a lot of moving parts. And as it's not necessarily clear where the U.S. is traveling, that perhaps makes it quite tricky for a really joined up transatlantic approach. Yeah, thanks, Marianne. Can I, can I just put something else to you as another condition that I was just wondering about as you were speaking there? And it struck me that when we think in the in the media, the discussion around big tech, a lot of the actors that are mentioned there are nominally American companies, even if in reality they're global. I just wondered whether that adds in an additional tension, an additional complication to this picture, because to some extent, is it fair to think of these different regions and, and countries, you know, the United States, the European Union, even the UK, like that to some extent they are also in competition in economic terms in this space. So is that an added complication for policymakers? Because at, at the end of the day, presumably the Biden administration needs to find a way to 
best support the interests of businesses that have grown in the United States? I think it certainly does add further complexity <laughs> to a quite complicated landscape. But there is, I think, on the one hand, a narrative that U.S. firms oppose EU rules that, in their view, target them. Then I think the reality is actually much, much more complicated than that. So the key question, I think, is, is Europe's focus on big tech or is it U.S. tech? And as you're hinting at, you know, it's probably both because you can't disentangle it. Europe's tech firms are too small to be caught up in the push for antitrust. And again, if you're looking at who controls the Internet, the U.S. holds 61% of the infrastructure that powers the Internet. So in, in a sense, there are these inbuilt dynamics. But at the same time, the key question, I think, from the business perspective, and Casper will be able to speak to that much better, is that you know, it raises question on ultimately, does it hinder or encourage innovation? What does it do to limiting or encouraging the ability of small firms to scale up? Ultimately, I think the answer to these questions also depend on the specific firm, their business model, their market positions. I don't think it's fair to say that there is a kind of business perspective writ large. Perhaps the one element where there is commonality is that firms, whether they're on the US or on the European side, what they want to see is regulation that creates clear and consistent rules and provides regulatory certainty. So again, I think we need to steer away from those simplistic narratives and take a much more nuanced approach because otherwise I think we risk undermining transatlantic cooperation on trade and technology. So I think the the question or or the comment from Ayan is, is a very valid one. I mean, what's the best thing for an economy? Is that to scale big companies or is it in fact to make sure that, you know, the ecosystem contributes to the development of big technologies? And I don't have the answer for that. But what I do know, also from speaking to, to political leaders across Europe, is that there are great concerns about, you know, the inability in Europe to build the companies of tomorrow, the job creators of tomorrow, the growth engines of, of tomorrow. And I think the lessons for the industry that I represent is, you know, we have to double down in making sure that our business model, the technology we, we develop and, and deploy is fundamentally set up, not least in a post-COVID-19 world, to support the backbone of Europe's uh, economy or indeed the, the global economy, small and medium-sized enterprises. I mean, how do we make sure that what we do actually benefits those companies so they are able to create the jobs uh, of tomorrow? And I think that's one of the lessons also from the digital sovereignty discussion that, you know, and I, I get it, I'm a European, as you can hear from my, my accent, that I, I do understand why there are concerns in in Europe about the world that we are we're looking into. And I think the worst thing we can do is dismiss this. I think we really need to make sure that we lean, lean in, you know, listen very carefully to what it is that is concerning. And then we build technology that uh, gives, in, in our case, what Europeans want. Thank you. Harriet, I, I wonder if I could come back to you and just see if you can bring in the UK perspective into this discussion because obviously as we've as we've already had mentioned in the wake of Brexit and the UK leaving the European Union uh, digital is just one area of policy where Britain's having to kind of define its own position a bit more than perhaps it used to so so what have we seen in the early days of post-Brexit Britain regards this digital regulation issue? Yeah, thanks, Ben. I think we've seen quite a lot, actually. I mean, clearly the UK is a lot smaller in market terms than the EU and the US, and it can't compete with the figures that Marianne was mentioning earlier. But I think, you know, it still has a lot of global soft power and, and real ambition and aspiration to push regulatory diplomacy in, in this area to try and 
get greater agreement around international standards and to try and champion, as I said, this open approach, which is um, rights-based as well. I think it also wants to position itself post-Brexit as this kind of nimble entrepreneurial third player that is not so constrained by the EU's rules. And so is able to perhaps be a bit less cautious in terms of regulatory approaches and maybe a bit lighter touch. But I mean, it's very early days still. It remains to be seen whether or not that's actually going to be the case. If we look at something like the online safety bill, which the the UK is looking at at the moment and thinking of introducing, I think, to Parliament early next year, it's actually very similar to the Digital Services Act, um, the draft that's going through the, the EU legislative processes at the moment. And both of them are seeking to tackle online harms, a very difficult area. I think both the EU and the UK are essentially trying to establish a best practice model that could potentially serve as a basis for other like-minded democratic states around the world, because so many countries are wrestling with how to regulate social media, and there hasn't really been a sort of good solution until now. Similarly, the UK has made much of coming out with its own data protection law, because obviously it's no longer bound by the EU provisions, GDPR. But it's likely that in practice that law is going to have to be quite aligned with the EU because if the EU and the UK want to be able to exchange data, then they're going to have the UK will have to meet the uh, adequacy standards of the EU. So I think in reality, the UK has been entrepreneurial and did a good job at at the G7 summit to try and bring in other players, uh, not just the UK, uh, US and the EU, but it, it may want to sort of think beyond the Western project, the Western alliance, And to think about capacity building, which is a big thing that was mentioned in the UK's integrated review and which the UN is really pushing so that we think about building relations with the global south and talking about capacity building, not just in terms of the cybersecurity of these different countries, but also what kind of regulatory approaches they should have and how potentially some of these best practice models coming out of the EU and the UK, albeit early days, might have some resonance um, around the world more broadly. I think one of the challenges, both for the European Union, as they look at the Digital Services Act or the Digital Markets Act around competition or the AI Act, which is underway as well, um, and similar to, I think, what is happening in the UK, in the US, around the world, is the ability to make these regulations future-proof. And I think that's going to be one of the additional challenges in the in the digital 21st century compared to some of the previous industrial revolutions, because what we know and, you know, what we also see inside a big technology company like Microsoft is, of course, we don't know exactly what technology we will be able to roll out in two years' time or in three years' time or in four years' time. So we are particularly interested in making sure that, for example, there is a regulatory dialogue between the private sector and the public sector, enabling the expiration date, if you like, on some of these regulations to be much, much longer. Because I think these are complicated, complex pieces of regulation that requires a long lead-in time, a lot of political discussions, a lot of political negotiations. And I think we have a, a joint interest in making sure that they are uh, long-lasting. And, and I think you know both uh, Mayana and, and, and Harriet also alluded to the fact that, especially for, for the industry, I'm not talking about a company like Microsoft, but also the thousands of European companies, including the UK, that are so dependent on international collaboration. What they are interested more in than anything else is a level playing field and predictability around what kind of market they will be looking into. So I think that in many ways is, is one of the challenges that we're facing, including here in December and a few weeks away from the French presidency of the European Union, where there is going to be a lot of push for getting, especially the DSA and the DMA, adopted. 
we've been doing quite a lot of work on the anticipatory aspects of technological regulation and sort of global governance generally in a world where the technology is constantly ahead of regulation. And so how do you try and, as you say, future-proof it? And I think there's some really interesting features coming out of both the EU's Digital Services Act and also the UK's Online Safety Bill, where there's this kind of co-regulatory structure where you have an independent regulator who's not dictating to companies what they should do, but trying to lay down a kind of risk-based, targeted, proportionate approach based on codes of conduct, which are not binding, but they can be updated quite easily. They're quite nimble. They set out the expectations that the regulator will have of these companies. And then if the companies don't meet them, then the regulator has the powers. I think this is the idea. Obviously, it's still early days to really go into the processes of the company and say, well, that's not transparent. What kind of algorithms are you actually using when you say you don't want um, to promote hate speech, how are you actually going about enforcing that? And then the power, of course, to fine companies if they don't, if they're not accountable, um, and then if they don't do what they say they are doing. So the fact that we have a big consultation on both of these laws, which has brought in lots of different stakeholders and has allowed a dialogue between the regulators and the governments and the companies and civil society, importantly, has been very, very good. And the sort of systems-based approach, I think, has some potential for being able to anticipate the next technology, whether it's the deep fake or the encryption, and hopefully being able to do it in a, I say, more targeted way than simply a government telling a company, you've got to take that down because we don't like it. I'd like to talk a bit now about the opportunities that there are for enhanced cooperation. As as you mentioned earlier, Harriet, it's obviously such a huge and complex issue and, and trying to get a wide range of countries to agree on anything at the moment seems to be a bit of a challenging task. But there are particular areas within this sector that could be fruitful for cooperation between the countries we've been discussing today, at least. Marianne, I wonder if you have a few thoughts just to kick us off on what scope there is for cooperation in the near future. Great. I mean, overall, there is a huge opportunity for shaping a very positive agenda. But at the same time, I think the US, the EU and the UK also need to manage some of the ongoing hurdles to transatlantic cooperation here, just to single out privacy and the transfer of personal data. So finding a replacement for the privacy shield. Another area is digital services taxation, where there has been some movement in light of the announcement at the G20 meeting in October that was based on the OECD's work. So again, as long as those issues can be managed, there is um, huge scope. A lot of work happening already across a whole range of different forms where the US, the EU, and the UK are key players. The most recent addition here is the Trade and Technology Council that was launched in June between the US and the EU, um, focuses on 10 working groups, um, quite important. Again, perhaps an opportunity to also include the UK in that somehow. I mentioned the OECD and its work on digital taxation and AI principles, quite important. Uh, the G7 was mentioned by Harriet already here, just to add the digital trade agenda and the G7 trade ministers agreed the digital trade principles earlier this year. And then also linking that up to the G20 on data free flow with trust. So a huge agenda. And again, a lot of moving parts there already. But I think in a transatlantic context in particular, it's also important to keep in mind that there's actually more that unites a transatlantic player than divides them. There is Again, differences with regards to their approaches and their risk tolerances, particularly between the US and the EU. 
But overall, um, they do share many democratic values and liberal norms, the open and global internet, the approach to digital technology regulation um, that's based on a multi-stakeholder dialogue, human rights, um, all of the things that we've discussed already. So again, huge opportunity for cooperation. And I think um, if we're looking at very specific areas to build out that transatlantic cooperation, I would say focus on the issues where there is limited existing regulatory obstacles. So AI, for example, might be an opportunity. Then focusing on investment in digital infrastructure and strengthening the competitive position vis-a-vis -vis China. Another area, I think, where the transatlantic partners are fairly aligned and there is more scope. And lastly, I think creating technology coalitions with advanced democracies will be quite critical. So working with the like-minded. And I think here, again, the US and the EU are the two giant democratic tech blocks that stand in sharp contrast to the autocratic regime of China and the challenges that are posed by Russia and India. But they also offer great complementarities together. So we have, again, US innovation and market power, combining that with the EU regulatory power and underlining that with their shared democratic values really puts, I think, the US, the EU and the UK at the core of a kind of democratic tech governance that we are seeing to emerge and that I think will be quite important for them to advance in the years ahead. Just building on, on what Mariam was saying there, um, it's great to see this these new new forums like the EU Trade and Technology Council. But I think what's also really good, and I um, welcome Casper's thoughts on this, is, is a sort of push towards greater inclusion in these debates of other stakeholders. And as I mentioned earlier, this sort of multi-stakeholder process is definitely something that I think pulls together and aligns the EU, US and UK. Just a couple of examples of it in action. Um, the uh, EU-US Trade and Technology Council had its inaugural meeting in September. And as part of that, they had a meeting with, with lots of stakeholders from industry and labor organizations and think tanks uh, and civil society. And I think that was encouraging. When we think that technology companies know a lot more than governments about technology in the end, and they often have bigger turnovers than some of the GDP of some countries. So it's, it's very important to bring them in. And I think civil society's role is around almost the canary in the coal mine often. It's about picking up where the harm is being done to individuals and really trying to safeguard the rights and, and sort of to work with technology companies and governments on, on trying to ensure that those rights are factored in at the design stage, not just at, at the rollout stage. And then recently, the UK held its Future Tech Forum. Day one was a multi-stakeholder discussion. Day two was government. I think it's just a sign of the direction of travel that we are starting to see uh, more inclusive approaches. But that needs to include, as I say, global South countries and not just uh, a Western alliance. Yeah, and Ben, you, you will be very disappointed because I know it's not a good debate when there isn't really debate and disagreement, but it's very difficult for me to, to disagree with what Harriet says. Let's get some antagonism in the room, please. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and find an opportunity later on. No, but you know, let me give you a good example that actually also comes out from the Trade and Technology Council that uh, Marianne went through. And, and just to fast forward to the conclusion, we also see the TTC as a pretty important transatlantic tool. And let's be honest, after a couple of years that have been particularly difficult and where I think there is a need to build up trust on both sides of the of the pond. One of the areas that the TTC will be looking at is cybersecurity. And, you know, unfortunately, that's an area where we're seeing increased threat patterns and uh, the, the perpetrators, whether they are state actors or non-state actors, unfortunately, didn't take a break during COVID-19. They, in fact, increased activities 
including targeting, you know, first responders, uh, scientists involved in, in vaccination research, hospitals, critical infrastructure, a pretty, from an ethical point of view, a pretty amazing uh, situation and a pretty horrible situation. But if we look at, at cybersecurity, I think this is one of the most clear examples of how the world today is different than it was even 20 years ago. Because, you know, if you look at the broader national security space, uh, in the old days, if you had somebody who violated your sovereignty, you would typically turn to the police or the armed forces in terms of responding to this break of sovereignty. I think in, in today's digital world, you can break sovereignty through virtual attacks. And that is, of course, what cybersecurity is all about. Now, the difference is where do you turn in order to mitigate those threats and build up the best defense? And the answer is you have to turn not only to the public sector and to your authorities, you also have to, whether you like it or not, bring in the private sector. And if I just speak about Microsoft, you know, not only are we involved in, in running some of the infrastructure that are the foundation for, for the global internet, and we run data centers, we have our productivity suites, which also means that in many ways we are first responders when it comes to some of these attacks that we are seeing. And therefore, we have to do everything we can to protect our customers, but we also have to work very closely together with authorities to make sure they have a complete threat picture, that they can also build up the appropriate mechanisms to make sure that these uh, attacks will not have a devastating effect on, on our societies and, and, and on the way we organize ourselves. And I think that goes to the point that Harriet was making before, about the necessity around multi-stakeholderism. And, uh, you know, I'm probably saying something which is, is not necessarily in my, my of official speaking notes, but I don't think it's always because we love being part of those discussions, but I think it's necessary for us to be part of those discussions. And it does come once in a while with risks. I mean, we've been very vocal in pointing out some of the main perpetrators, you know, naming names, calling out specific, uh, you know, groups that are, are launching some of these attacks. And that is not always popular, but we do that because we think trust is the foundation that, that our business model uh, builds on or, or trust in technology is so uh, foundational that we have to do everything we can to find cybersecurity. So again, perhaps an, uh, you know, an area where, where today's world is a little bit different than the world we saw uh, a decade ago. Thanks for bringing that in and, and for sharing that example, because it sort of brings me to the last issue that I wanted to raise in this conversation as we come towards the end. And I don't want to end on a downer, really, but I wanted just to get a sense as we go into our next episodes in the series about why it's so important that this that this cooperation takes place and i think that cybersecurity example is is an interesting one from that perspective because it's it's ultimately not about you know how can we obviously the economic side of things and and trying to increase productivity innovation profits at the end of the day is a super important part of this picture and doing that in a fair and inclusive way but then there is also just a, a question of human rights it's a question of security there are other aspects to this that if we don't get this regulation right there could be some quite severe downsides so i just wonder if people could <laughs> if any of you would like to comment on you know the stakes if if cooperation fails to emerge in the next few years what are the implications of that you know i i, I think a lot is is at stake then and uh, and i said uh, in the beginning that i think then the next sort of 24 to 36 months are going to be absolutely essential when we look around governance of, of technology and digitalization. Now, I sit in Brussels, I work from a European point of view, so that's going to be my, my sort of observation point. And, and I think getting regulation right 
is important, not only because we want to mitigate some of the threats that we're seeing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a father to two teenagers. I care deeply about digital safety and the kind of a potential risk they're facing on a daily basis. And I also want regulation in this area. And I think there is a misconception once in a while that the big industry is not interested in regulation. I think we're super interested in regulation. It makes our lives easier, but we're also interested in the right kind of regulation. And, and this is not meant as, as a sort of a, a threat or, or anything like that. But, but I do think that the problem that European decision makers are facing is to get regulation right also know in order not to stifle innovation in Europe. And I, I think, you know, for example, if you look at the, the act on artificial intelligence being promoted, um, I think we just have to be honest in saying that there are definitely a lot of voices around Europe, including in sort of the ecosystems around AI that are concerned about whether this goes too far and is too much of a straitjacket that will actually make it more difficult for Europe to reap the full benefits of the AI revolution, to put it like that. Now, I'm not the right person to ask whether that is right or wrong, but I think it is something we need to pay attention to and that European decision makers need to pay attention to. Because, of course, when we look at the data sets, um, and we like to look at data sets, you know, Europe is not necessarily where Europe needs to be. When we look at digital skills, when we look at digitalization in the public sector, when we look at, at cloud adaptation, you know, on a number of these different parameters, Europe are trading behind compared to North America and, and parts of Asia. So, so I think getting regulation right is not only important because we want to make sure that, that regulation hits where it wants to. I think it's also important in making sure that Europe will remain competitive at the global level in the years to come. Just building on that, I think, you know, what we're seeing is that digital technology really is key to geopolitics, to economics, and to norm of power and values. And I think that is ultimately what's at stake, who, you know, gets to make the rules of the road, and on what principles are those decisions being based. And I think, again, here, the US, EU, and the UK, given their shared um, outlook and approaches, are quite critical in ensuring that it reflects their principles of, you know, openness, of transparency, and of multi-stakeholder engagement. Yeah, and I'd just chip in that I think the real risk of a lack of cooperation and lack of international regulation in this space is a much more fragmented landscape. And I think that's gonna have real implications for the economy, for digital trade, for social development, but also for international human rights law, which is a universal framework. If we start getting into uh, very state-based internets, then um, I think there's gonna be a lot of downside. To end on a positive note, Ben, as you requested, I do think that the political di dynamics are broadly favourable at the moment for this greater cooperation between the EU, the US and the UK. We do have to be realistic. There are clear differences. There are tensions. But there does seem to be some kind of momentum building as a result of the forums that we've discussed and as a result of the whole impetus behind the need for more regulation and the fact we have so many kind of exciting drafts coming out that are difficult, but we, we're pouring over them in the EU and the UK and the US is watching very closely. So hopefully that we're going to see some sort of exciting energy in the room in the next couple of years with all these different minds from different sectors getting together. And I think as long as there are those forums for dialogue, that's half the battle. It's actually getting the people, the right people in the room and, and remembering that we have more in common than we have that divides us um, when we're talking about the EU, the US and the UK on tech governance. 
Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was that was the positive note I was looking for, Harriet. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's been a, a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Casper, Harriet, Mariana, for joining me. And I hope you enjoy the later episodes in the series as well. Well, that's it for this episode of Transatlantic Tech Talks. Bit of a mouthful, that title. Maybe I should have rethought that. But anyway, (laughs) I hope that you enjoyed listening to the conversation between Casper, Harriet and Marianne. It was certainly really fascinating to listen in on it. I learnt a lot. We'll be back in the next two episodes looking at particular case studies within this broad topic of digital cooperation. So first off, you're going to hear a conversation that my colleague Isabella Wilkinson from the International Security Programme recorded the other day, which is looking at digital technical standards, particularly around data governance and data sharing, which really do raise fundamental questions about how the different countries involved here think about the issue of digital regulation. And then finally, to cap off the series, I'm back in the studio again with my colleague Marianne Schneider-Petzinger to look at how this debate plays out in the digital trade sector. And we're joined by some great guests there. Hope you can join us for those. They should be in your feed very soon if they're not already. And thank you again for joining us for Transatlantic Tech Talks. <laughs>